Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Recess over for Congress. Nancy Pelosi has called back the House because of a growing controversy surrounding the USPS, the United States Postal Service. Writing on this subject today in Bloomberg Opinion, uh, Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg. And in fact, it wasn't today, Tim, but it has been recently and it's not the first time you've written on this subject. What can Congress do to throw light on what the president is doing and rein in anything that's illegal? Um, well, Vanya, I think, I think Congress can do a lot to throw light on the problem. I'm not sure how much they can do to stop it. What's going on is um, mail carriers' hours have been reduced, post office hours have been reduced, <clears throat> um, large mail sorting machines are being taken out of commission in post office hubs, and all of this is slowing down mail delivery. That matters in an election year. Pardon me, because uh, there's a, there's a strong chance we're going to have a huge surge in mail-in voting uh, this year because of the pandemic, and um, it's it's pretty clear that um, this is is it is an effort to weaponize the postal service to slow down mail-in balloting, and the president is behind that. Uh, He's done very little uh, to try to stop it. He's been questioned about it. He said he has no interest in changing what's going on at the Postal Service. In fact, he said he won't even release funds to the Postal Service that would allow it to speed up its operations. Um, uh, Congress is holding hearings. Congress has asked the Inspector General at the Post Office to examine this. Uh, A number of state Attorneys General uh, are are coalescing around this and planning to sue the Trump administration and the post office to stop these practices, but that has to wend its way through the courts. So the issue here is um, how much can really be done in real time to course correct here so voters of both parties don't get their votes um, taken away from them because the post office can't deliver their ballots. I, I didn't even know this was a thing until it happened, Tim. Um, it just seems like every day there's something new here. Is there? This kind of goes to the bigger question, I guess, that some people are raising, that if the president were to lose this election, that perhaps he would not be willing to really admit that or, or, or he yeah. would con- con- contest it. Is that a material risk in your perspective? Uh, it's a very material risk, and he said as much. You know, he said in recent press appearances uh, that we won't know the result on election night. We may not know it for weeks after election night, perhaps even months. I mean, that we certainly may not know on election night, and we may not know shortly after election night. But but we will find out in in relatively short order, uh, and voters will just have to get used to the fact that this will take a little longer this year. Uh, but the president has already seeded the ground with the idea that. Uh, the vote can't be trusted. Uh, he said that mail-in balloting is riddled with fraud. That's just factually untrue. Uh, a, a majority of states have used it uh, quite well uh, for quite a long time, including red states, Republican states, who stand by it as a process. Uh, so, yeah, it's a material risk. And I think like everything in the Trump era, he's he's pressing the limits of what we accept as norms around executive authority and presidential behavior and and public institutions that are really challenging people 
to kind of wrestle these things to the ground. Well, Tim, it's really interesting because it sort of puts paid to the idea that the president may not run now or may pull out of the race if he thinks he's not going to win or or or, or this rhetoric that's going around that maybe he doesn't really want it, that he had his one term and, and he'll be fine doing something else. It seems like he really, really, really does want to win a second term. The other thing that's been pointed out to people in his campaign and to himself is that last time around, mail-in balloting actually benefited him. And so even that isn't enough, you know, to, to change his his mind on what's going on here with the Postal Service. Now, his argument is that it's a money loser. And of course, that's a winning argument for a capitalist who cares about money. How how do those who don't like what's going on defend the, the USPS against well, so that? It's, it, it's the United States Postal Service. It's not the United States Postal Business. It was mentioned... In the, in the Constitution as an organization that was meant to knit the country together and to make sure that Americans who lived in far-flung places would always have a means of communication. Uh, and that's still true today. The post office loses a lot of money on traditional mail delivery uh, because they have to deliver to remote rural communities. Seniors really rely, rely on the service. And uh, the post office itself is not allowed to raise the price of stamps. That's, that's set by a commission that decides what the affordable rate should be. Uh, but we also don't expect the Department of Defense to make a profit. In mm-hmm. fact, the Department of Defense loses, by that standard, the Department of Defense loses far more money annually than the post office. Uh, roads and bridges, fire departments, police departments, uh, the intelligence services and the diplomatic corps and the White House itself are not for-profit businesses. They're public services. Uh, that said, uh, there's no question that the post office's operations could be streamlined and, and, and new thought and fresh thinking about how it can do its job better is welcome. But it's a complete straw man to say this is about just making the post office a better business. It's very clear now that, that this is about the post office's mission um, being perverted and derailed in the service of, of a trench warfare approach to politics. Wow, this is extraordinary. Tim O'Brien. Thanks so much for joining us and providing some color on what is a developing story, uh, one that's getting the uh, interest and the, uh, of Congress right now as uh, Speaker Pelosi brings the House back. Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us on just a fascinating story. There's something new uh, every day, it seems like, and it's uh, the good folks at Bloomberg News and, uh, and Bloomberg Opinion uh, keeping up on all of it. So we appreciate uh, their help. Well, this market's been described as one that's being, quote unquote, backstopped by the U.S. Federal Reserve and for that matter, central banks around the world to get a sense of whether that is enough for this market going forward. We welcome Nick Colas, co-founder of DataTrek Research. Uh, Nick, thanks so much for joining us here. So again, I'd love to get your 30,000 foot view on what's kind of pushing this market higher. We obviously had that terrible pullback uh, March, April when the coronavirus uh, hit. But since then, with the, uh, the Federal Reserve stepping in and with fiscal stimulus and all, the markets come roaring back. I'd love to get your thoughts right here, right now, as it relates to some of these riskier assets. Sure. The way we think about it at DataTrek is the market is discounting 
a very definite V bottom, not necessarily in the economy, but in corporate profits. So if you think about a $42 a share earnings power number for the S&P in the back half of last year per quarter, $41, $42, market's expecting we're going to get back to those levels in the next four quarters. So even though the economy is going to be sluggish, we are going to get very high levels of corporate profitability because of fiscal stimulus, because of monetary stimulus, and because of cost cutting, we're going to get back to those numbers. And that's why the market's back to its old highs, because it doesn't care how we get that earnings number. It just cares that we do get it. And it has a very high degree of confidence that we will. But Nick, it doesn't matter how much stimulus you give corporations or how lenient you make the rules for them to you know, get money to tie them over. If there isn't demand for their products from, from customers who themselves are strapped, those earnings can't be there, can they? No, very good point, and that's why the change in the composition of the S&P is so important. We're actually looking at this for clients last night. You know, back in 2016, technology was 20% of the S&P. The comp number now, apples to apples, 33%. And as we saw with second quarter earnings, you you have a whole range of cyclical companies that are really hurting, but technology is doing extremely well. So the S&P 500 is kind of a unique measure of corporate profitability because it is weighting those companies that have very high levels of profitability, even today, um, uh, showing high levels of cash flow, it values them very highly. So the S&P is not perhaps the best measure, but it's the one most folks follow. And the earnings are there for the technology sector and others that aren't as affected. So, Nick, it, it appears that uh, this next, next round of fiscal stimulus, you know, we the, we didn't get it, you know, before the recess. Now there's some talk about perhaps we'll get something in September. How critical is it for the market to get a meaningful piece of fiscal stimulus uh, in the relatively near term? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's probably a 15 or a 16. Um, <laughs> it's super Super critical, you know. And, and to Bonnie's point earlier, it, it's it underpins that uh, ability for aggregate earnings to uh, improve. You know, without that, you don't get that part of the story. Look, I mean, you know, looking at past cycles, you know, every cycle bottom's a little bit different, and it, the biggest difference is exactly what's going to make us come off the bottom. This time around, the, the hole is so deep that the market's saying. Um, politicians have to provide the stimulus. They have no choice. It's an election year. And so our uncertainty about future earnings is actually lower than traditional bottom cycle moments when there isn't that level of support. So, Nick, you know, what's the biggest risk here to this to this market rally? You know, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, to us, the biggest risk is is a hybrid of the polit- political issue and the earnings issue. You know, we think back to 2008, for example, really horrible quarter for, um, for, the, for the market. And it came in part because there was a huge change of government in Washington during the 08 elections. And we had a real power vacuum for several months during a period of, you know, in the middle of the financial crisis. My biggest concern is we just get that a similar kind of power vacuum around the elections, not necessarily because of anything untoward that happens in the election, but just that no one's in charge in D.C. for a few months just when we get into perhaps a second wave and uh, real concerns about the state of the economy in the first half of next year. So my biggest concern is we get a power vacuum in Washington in the latter month of the year, and you end up with not so much confidence around those corporate earnings as we discussed. All right, so Nick, if where do you th- where do you think investors should be looking in this market? Given the move we've had, given that it's been you know the breadth of this market isn't what most technicians or even fundamental analysts would like to see, 
Where do you see opportunities here, you know, as you take a look across some of the risk assets? You know, right now we are favoring cyclicals um, selectively. So I'm talking about industrials and energy first and foremost. Industrials have the most earnings leverage going into 2021, meaning they generate the most dollar incremental profits from an upside surprise in revenues. And energy has the biggest potential upside on the revenue side. Evil profitability will be kind of shaky just because of commodity pricing improving. So cyclicals are the place we're recommending people to put incremental money. It's going to be a hard way to make money, though. We think cyclicals will outperform over the back half of the year, but it'll probably happen over 10 random days where they're up 2% and the market's flat. And it's a tough way to make money, but that's the way to outperform. We don't like the financials, though. The financials are just stuck in their own private hell. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, right? I mean, even Warren Buffett is, is deciding that he doesn't care about the financials anymore. It's really, really interesting. Did you learn anything from the 13F filings, Nick? No, no. From Buffett's, no. I mean, it's it is it, it's always fascinating to watch him because he's just so good at what he does. But um, no, not really. It's and just more broadly from the hedge funds and and what they were doing or how hedge funds made money. So, for example, I was struck by Chris Rockwell spying just a whole heap of Alibaba, and like literally, that's all he did. He just made that one, if I can say, ballsy trade, and you know, obviously, it's paying off. Yeah, no, I mean, Baba is an interesting one because the valuation is so cheap relative, and China tech generally is so cheap relative to U.S. tech that you kind of want to think there's a catch-up trade, and we're certainly seeing some of the catch-up trade in the broader Chinese market today with the stimulus last night. Mm. Are you seeing, Nick, so to the extent you're looking at uh, more cyclical names, does that suggest you're going to fund that with some of the, the tech names that have outperformed? Yes. I mean, the, the way the way we think about it is if you, if you want to underweight one sector, it's got to be financials. There's just nothing going on there. And then you can dumbbell it out between the industrials, energy and, and the tech uh, and have a reasonable shot at outperforming. The, the banks are just, just in a horrible space. Nick, we will catch up with you again very soon and uh, take the temperature of the banks and the cyclicals and lots, lots more. This market is going nowhere, as it, as it seems anyway. It's going to just continue to grind higher. Nick Colos is co-founder of DataCheck Research. Fantastic notes every day, really. And uh, get in touch with Nick if, uh, if you want to subscribe to their research. Once again, our thanks to Nick Colas. I do want to bring you a headline that crossed the Bloomberg just a few moments ago. New York City gyms can open August 24th, which is one week from today, with 33% capacity. So a third That's capacity. Big. Yeah, and in fact, it's more than New York City. It's 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 New York State gyms. So gyms all over the state can open August 24th as long as people wear masks and they are not full beyond 33% capacity, which was so beginners or people who haven't gone to the gym in a long time. Quite happy for fewer people to be in the gym. Yeah, absolutely. That's not to suggest that uh, I myself will be going back, (laughs) but that might not be for coronavirus reasons. That might be for other reasons. New research suggests glaring divergences between AMD and Intel, something that maybe didn't seem so obvious before. Let's bring in Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence to tell us about this new research. Anand, you know, there were arch rivals, but what does this new research tell us about AMD and Intel, how they do their business and their products? Uh, good morning, morning, Paul. Uh, thank you for having me. So we've done some work that study that uh, suggests that there's a structural landscape shift uh, going on in the microprocessor industry um, across PCs and across servers uh, between AMD and Intel. AMD appears to uh, be on the front foot um, 
and will continue to gain share in our view through 2020 and 2021. And in the data center, their share could as much as triple from sort of the five-ish percent range to the 15-ish percent range. Um, and Intel, on the other hand, uh, will continue to lose share. Um, Intel has a wider variety of products and certainly is larger, uh, but that may not help it at all uh, over the next couple of years, particularly as the cloud becomes a bigger piece of the pie and a more powerful piece of the pie. So, you know, you look at the valuations and you look at how the stocks have performed year to date. And while it might suggest, you know, we're getting a lot of calls from clients about, okay, is this, you know, uh, another setup for long Intel short AMD, for example. But uh, fundamentals are suggesting exactly, uh, exactly the opposite. So, on you know, to this tech layperson, when I think chips, uh, I think Intel. What's happened to Intel in terms of, you know, losing share here? They seem to have lost kind of their, you know, their, uh, I guess their new product mojo, their technology mojo. What's what do you think is at the root there? You know, you can attribute it to a bunch of different factors, Paul. I mean, if you look at their technology transitions, uh, transitions from a transistor shrinkage perspective. They were late to 14 nanometer, they're late to 10 nanometer, and now 7 nanometer is delayed. Now, conceded that, you know, the technology shrinkage isn't the be-all, end-all, and Moore's law is, in fact, slowing. But smaller the transistors, more the transistors on the chip, more the transistors on the chip, chip is more powerful, uh, quite simplistically. And at the, at the same time, more transistors on the chip reduces the cost for transistor purely because of scaling, and if you keep prices uh, same or you reduce it at a lower rate, your gross margins also can expand. But AMD um, has certainly taken the upper hand in this and is as much as a node or node and a half ahead of Intel. And Intel's um, sort of slow in its transitions. It has a wider ice cream shop, if you may. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a, a wider variety of flavors, wider variety of toppings and sauces and stuff that go with it. But at the end of the day, you know, you still have to have a quality vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate in order to build a, a, a more fitting ice cream Sunday for your clients. I'm loving these analogies, Anand. So what do customers want? Do they want the maybe a little bit more old-fashioned flavors, you know, at a good price point that are very, very reliable, you know, or do they want the new stuff? I mean, people were quite happy to wait for Apple to catch up with other people on, on their software and so on. They, they, they didn't demand that Apple be first on everything. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So one of the, uh, that's actually a fantastic question because the cloud has upended, um, upended the demand for the ice cream, if you may. If you look at the variety of computing workloads that the cloud has brought to bear, everything has become large. Everything has now has scale. So you want the specialized ice cream sundae, um, and the demand for that is high relative to, you know, corporate IT demand um, scale, if you may, and the vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate. So if you look at what AMD has to offer, maybe it doesn't have all the flavors um, in, the, in the ice cream shop. And maybe its applicability uh, to cloud workloads, if you may, is predominantly in the vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry at a better price. <laughs> right? No one listening so, to this segment is going to have any idea what we're talking about at this point. What about no, the cones? The What's the cones, machine, though, Anand? But, but the, but the uh, ice cream machine at Intel is broken, right? 
So that's the, that's the, that's the key part. At yeah. the end of the day, three years from now, five years from now, you have to be able to churn these out, no pun intended, um, at a better, um, uh, with better quality and at a better price point. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result, when you build these massive servers and, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft are buying these servers right. 10000 at a clip or 50000 at a clip, you have to have better performance and better pricing and I think the applicability of AMD is increasing and the applicability of Intel products is, right. over the next couple of years, is decreasing. Anand Srinivasan, thanks so much for joining us. Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst, Part-Time Ice Cream Analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here, talking to us about I'm the, very hungry ostensibly the semiconductor, you know, the chip business, but I kind of uh, kind of went oh, uh, he took a different little route there with his analogy, but that works. So we got uh, AMD kind of hitting on all cylinders. Uh, Intel, from a product perspective, some concern. That's per Anand's research. Well, Sally Bakewell of Bloomberg News had a story uh, several days ago, really fascinating. Basically, the gist does stimulus has helped Amazon and Visa borrow at record low rates, yet small companies face tighter conditions threatening the recovery. To dig deep on that story and that phenomenon, we're welcome to, uh, to have Ted Koenig, president and CEO of Monroe Capital, uh, $9.3 billion under, ma- under management. Ted, thanks so much for joining us here. So give us a sense of kind of the, the mid-market company out there. Is it easy or difficult for them to access capital here to try to make it through the pandemic, much less to find growth capital? Uh, thanks for asking. It's tough. Um, you know, we, we specialize, we have 508 middle market companies in our portfolio that we lend money to. Uh, everything from $25 million of revenue up to about $500 million of revenue. These companies are not viewed as investment grade, so they don't have the ability to go into the marketplace and issue bonds or high-yield debt that the government's been backing. So these companies have really been on their own and uh, left to their own devices. They rely on the asset value or the enterprise value of, uh, of, of their own companies in order to borrow money. And once they've borrowed capital that the banks believe uh, you know, is an amount sufficient to cover their assets, whether it's accounts receivable, inventory, equipment, or real estate, uh, they don't really have any other options. The, go- the government has not allowed uh, these companies have any any good options at their disposal to generate liquidity and that's really what's um, causing Main Street America. Well so explain that a little bit because A isn't that what you're for and B should the government be funding these companies? Well the government has put up the PPP program and what the government has done is they've injected liquidity in order to buy bonds of the very large investment grade companies. Um, we're a lender. We focus on buyouts and transactions for mid-market companies. We do it based upon collateral value. Uh, we lend up to what you know these companies. As a private lender, we lend up to what these companies can um, can, can rightfully borrow, and uh, we do it through institutional LPs. Uh, right, but I still I'm still not sure about what what the complaint is regarding the government. So they can apply for PPP if they meet the criteria, and they can borrow from banks if they meet the criteria. And if they don't, they also have the option of getting extra cash from you guys. So what, I'm, I'm just lost. Just explain the, the problem with the government. Well, what's, what's happening is that the, uh, the government has been buying 
in order to provide liquidity into the market. They've been buying um, corporate bonds. They've been on a corporate bond buying program for quite a while, and that's part of the U.S. Treasury. And uh, that provides capital to the company. Lenders like us need the same liquidity. I I need that liquidity to make loans to a lot of the companies. And in times like this, many LPs, whether they're pension funds or uh, endowments or foundations, don't have the ability to fund um, into the investments. Like so have there been many, are you saying that risky. many of your portfolio companies are at risk of or have gone bankrupt? Is that is that a fact? No, not bankrupt. Uh, because of business interruptions, a lot of middle market companies, um, particularly those in the areas of leisure, um, hotel, airlines, uh, restaurants, um, have, have had significant challenges. That's due to closure. It's not due to bad business. It's not due to bad management. It's just due to the economy being closed to them. Yeah. When the economy opens up, you know, those companies that are still around, hopefully will turn it around, but it's getting the, it's covering the bridge from here to there. Yeah. Ted, where are the commercial banks in all of this? They're the primary lender to these types of companies. How are they performing? Are they making their balance sheets available? Uh, it's hard. You know, in, in, in times of stress, Banks tend to look inward, and they don't tend to put money to work. Um, This is no different than the last crisis. Uh, Right now, banks are very concerned about their portfolios. You look at the bank stocks across the board are down. Losses are up. The market believes that there's more losses to come in banks' portfolios. So banks do not tend to be um, very aggressive. If you look at what's happening in the government right now, the government's trying to push the Main Street lending program. And the way that program works is banks are required to underwrite a portion of those loans, call it 5%. Banks have not embraced the government's Main Street lending program because they don't want to take the exposure right now of lending to these companies. Yeah, I mean, Ted, it's a, it's a horrible situation, but uh, for some of the companies, would you blame them? I mean, what percentage of the portfolio companies you deal with do you think will be around in a year's time? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I can't blame the lenders. I mean, I'm in the same position. You know, we, we've got to make sure we don't lose money for our shareholders and yeah. our, uh, our investors. So it's a, it's a fine balance between, you know, making uh, you know, good loans and being responsible to your uh, shareholders and your investors and then providing relief. You know, right now there's a liquidity need. A lot of these companies don't have places to go to get the liquidity need. You know, the PPP programs were basically um, payroll uh, protection for employees. And you know, those were 90-day programs to cover uh, um, payroll. Many of those programs, now that, that program came out in May, many of those programs in you know, August, September are now going to come to an end. And uh, there's a lot of outcry on these smaller companies that took the PPP program money yeah. uh, that now are in trouble. Yeah, and I mean, some restaurateurs were saying this even before they took PPP loans. Some of them didn't even take it because of this, you know. I mean, they, there was no guarantee that business was going to be back to normal three months later. And if there wasn't, why would you, you know, rehire people that were then going to have to go again? Ted Koenig, President and CEO of Monroe Capital, thank you for joining. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.